0: Hello everybody, this is Chandra Dassa at the Buddhist Centre Online and we are back with some new podcast episodes for Buddhist Voices. I'm very happy to welcome Karina Adavi, who's here from San Francisco. We're on the east coast of the US at the moment in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She's visiting the area and uh, we're very lucky to have a couple of hours with her, a chance to, to hear about her life. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Chandra Dassa.
0: Now we... We were talking a little bit last night in the shrine room at our local Buddhist centre and there are some things we'd like to talk about. One of them that I'm very interested in is Buddhist mysticism, mysticism in general. But that's all for later on. First of all, let's let people know who you are, where you come from. How would you describe yourself as a Dharma practitioner or Buddhist voice? What is it people would be most interested to hear, do you think?
1: Mm. Well, I come from, I was born in the Midwest, in Iowa, heartland it's called, around here. And I was baptized as a Presbyterian, but my family moved and we became Methodists when I was about nine or ten years old. And I would say that that period of my life, I realized I was a spiritual being. I mean, I didn't have those words for it, of course, at that age. But I began to really listen to sermons at church. I went through a kind of a catechism thing before being confirmed. And I learned about symbolism in the Christian church. And I became really fascinated by symbols, religious symbols. And in fact, I had been really wondering who, who god was what god was and um so i posed the question to the minister that god was a symbol he, he didn't particularly
0: <laughs> you said that
1: <laughs> like that uh idea but that carried through
0: I wish I'd seen that <laughs> Now can you I hope it's not indelicate to ask Can you locate people in time for this? What decade is this? Is this yeah this would so? have
1: been about 54
0: Fifty-four. Yeah. So would you say then that was a kind of Religious culture you grew up in That the religion was taken seriously Was an important aspect of life or was it peripheral.
1: In the Midwest religion was serious a serious well, the church. It was a social activity, right? Mm. I mean the church was sort of the center of the communities. And this town that we moved to was a very small town. So that the churches were everyone had their own church, but yeah, it was kind of the center of the community. I think I found my voice there. You know, it was in the youth, the Methodist Youth Fellowship and had a sense of community around the church. But I felt very different in that I had these experiences. I found myself crying in church a lot on Sunday mornings during the services. I had these, I would say, kind of mystical experiences out in nature, experiences of impermanence, Hmm. um, insight into impermanence of voices that I was kind of hearing, (laughs) or I don't know what
0: they were, but... Yeah. Was that kind of thing, in a way, you noticing at that age with that kind of consciousness, you noticing what things were like in a certain way and responding rather than getting carried away on a religious idea or
1: something? Yes, I think so. Yeah, it was, yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: Of course, I couldn't share any of those experiences with anyone.
0: So your family, would they have considered themselves religious, a religious family, your My
1: mother did, but again, it was more of, of a... Appearances in a way, and hmm. her conditioning and uh, hmm. kind of the routine.
0: Did they notice you were different in this kind of in a way you're having quite a strong personal response to faith?
1: And hmm. Did they hmm. notice
0: that that you were?
1: I don't know if they noticed that or not.
0: Hmm. It wasn't a feature of their
1: We didn't talk about it.
0: Yeah. Is that a general thing that you don't talk about personally? That I don't... No, no, no that the no. families don't talk yeah, about personally? Yeah, I don't think so.
1: I mean, well, at least my family. Uh, very uh, practical, Yeah, you know, not many words, not discussions. Not at that point in my life. Later on, my dad started reading quite a lot. But at that point, everybody was working very hard, working to make a living. And, yeah, it was just very practical...
0: What was the, what
1: was the industry? My dad, just he was very skilled in a lot of things, but he moved from job to job. He liked repairing things. He liked remodeling, carpentry. But he did that on the side. And he was doing jobs that were not very satisfying hmm. for money hmm. earlier in my life. And then he sort of branched out and became a handyman and went into business for himself. And, but he didn't do that until he was in his 50s. Hmm. And that was after he did a transcendental meditation course. Whoa!
0: And was that you influence?
1: No. Was this c- was before, this I, before I encountered Buddhism.
0: Ah, so was that an influence for you, do you think, knowing the heat... It branched out.
1: <laughs> it was easier for me to tell them about my best
0: uh, <laughs> interest. <laughs> so there you are. You're standing talking to the minister again when you're ten or whatever, saying God's just a symbol.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: wasn't very, he wasn't very impressed by that as an idea.
1: Uh, no, no, he didn't really buy it.
0: No. Huh. Did he at least engage? Did he take it seriously that you were asking questions, or
1: I don't remember that he said very much about it. He said, "Well, it isn't exactly that way," or something like hmm.
0: that. Hmm. So, when did you, um, in a way, first take hold of your own spiritual life and decide, "I'm gonna, mm.
1: I'm gonna have to
0: do more than show up at church or have my own personal mm. private experiences"? Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. When we moved to California, which was in 1967, we were going to a church at Stanford Memorial Church, was in interdenominational. The minister there was very political also, and this was during the Vietnam War. Mm. And so that was a different message of Christianity, a different Mm. way that religion was being presented than I'd ever experienced before.
0: In California in 1967, that's a different world from Iowa yeah, in 1967, it? a very different it?
1: world. And I really, in Iowa, I went to university, but I really was pretty isolated from what was going on in the world. I hadn't paid attention to what was going on in the world till I got there.
0: You weren't encouraged to pay attention to what was going on in the world? Not really. Yeah. Why did your family move to California? Oh, or my just, family. You, just, no, you no. just moved.
1: I moved with my husband, my first husband. Uh, who was going to school at Stanford. He got a scholarship to go to school at Stanford and work at Lockheed Missiles in Space, and he was going to be an aerospace engineer.
0: Now, it's funny, because when I hear something like California 1967, a bit of me just responds and thinks, wow, that's really cool. That's like one of these archetypal, you know, 20th century moments, like the couple of years leading up to the Summer of Love and the Vietnam War. and." Was it actually like that? Was it such a heightened time when you were in it? Or is that all just historical? It was a
1: heightened time. I mean, I lived south of, you know, in Sunnyvale, south of San Francisco. But, yeah, I became aware of the protests all all around. And it wasn't too long. Well, let's see. We moved to Palo Alto, which was more in the center of things. And I found the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence that was founded by John Baez.
0: Hmm. And... uh,
1: yeah, that was very eye-opening
0: to me. Mm. And she was active in that community, presumably? Yeah, time, she was local. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I heard her speak. I remember hearing her speak, and it was after my son was born. So that was in 69. I went one night to hear her speak, and I couldn't even sleep that night. I was so incredibly moved what was she talking by about? what she was talking about. Just a way of life that was very different. (laughs) She was talking about community and decentralization and, you know, small communities, kind of Ivan Illich kind of things, Mm. and alternative education. She was really describing the counterculture that I hadn't been introduced to at that point. But then then I started to go to the potlucks at the Institute Mm. and uh, go to some of their workshops and they had their own bank. I mean, they were creating a new society, if
0: you will. Yeah, sure. But <laughs> so, well, it still resonates, doesn't it? Even now, because when... it made me think they're, you know, Palo Alto particularly, mm. Facebook and Apple, et cetera, all grew up out mm-hmm. of that. Or Apple particularly. Nowadays, something like Facebook grows out of that original homebrew counterculture computing movement mm-hmm. in the early 70s. That's right. And... Although that's now all become massively corporate, etc., as Stanford has, as all those things have, it does all s- still represent something, doesn't it, in American culture? Like It does. The last big wave of optimism and yeah. expansiveness. And
1: yeah, it was sense that anything was possible, that this kind of change was possible, and that we could create it right now in the midst of all this other stuff going on, all the violence and greed and... Yeah, food co-ops where we were.
0: Is that particular community still active in that area? or is it It's all...
1: changed a lot, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely changed
0: form. Mm. So you're having a bit of a spiritual awakening by the sounds of it with, with yeah. that kind of world it, of you can actually live this stuff out. It's not just yeah. abstract or religious. It's like you can... Yeah. yeah. There's other people.
1: Yeah, and I think coming from where I came from and my conditioning... I came right up against my limitations of how to participate and how to communicate mm. with those people. And I've always been very, very shy, painfully shy as a child. And so it was very frustrating for me, too. And I felt like I just saw that I needed to do some work on myself mm. in order to be able to change the world.
0: <laughs> so what, what carries you in a way from that sort of exposure to a real eye-opening yeah. sense of alternative living with yeah. other people. What carries you from something as broad-based as that at that particular moment in American cultural history into something as specific as Buddhist practice and particular approach to, to the Dharma? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I met a couple of people through alternative education that I got involved in because I was a teacher. I was an elementary school teacher. And so I was seeking out alternative Education to get involved, to move my teaching career in that direction. And then also, I got divorced from my husband who was on the path to becoming an aerospace engineer. And we had very different aims in life. Hmm. I kind of... Wanted to just live a subsistence lifestyle. <laughs> and he's he's
0: I, working for Lockheed Martin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is a different.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and very different. He had very different conditioning too. Mm. His parents were. His father was a banker, and so we were. We came from different classes, was, if you will, mm. in a sense, even in Iowa. But yeah, and so I was influenced by the people I was starting to meet. And there was definitely a a spiritual element to that, but more counterculture, more just humanism, you know, and personal growth movement. I started to, I took psychology class. I wanted to work on myself. I really wanted to break out of Mm -hmm. of a shell that I felt that I was in a cage that I felt I was in.
0: And what were the alternative education things? Is this like Steiner schools or, you know, the um,
1: There's a Summerhill model school that actually, you know, I sent my kids to. My son went to a really small version of that, and then my daughter was born nine years after he was. So that's a whole other, that strain of my life's so a whole other
0: <laughs> We'll come back to story, that.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, there was a parent-run program within Mm. an elementary school district that I was working in. Mm. And I got involved in that parent-run school, kind of created a job for myself there as a teacher counselor where I worked with kids that were having difficulties. Mm. It was all open space school. And my daughter was born at that point, and I took her to school with me. Mm. I nursed her in the classroom. And the parents were like, they were just really happy. So, you know, I found a little niche there, a little Mm. subculture. Mm. (laughs) Um, In Cupertino, the Mm. home of Apple computers.
0: Mm. And this presumably is a sort of experience of a different kind of family, almost? It's like you're held in a community, but it's not traditional at that point.
1: Yeah, the people, yeah, my friends in Palo Alto, were definitely like that and actually then one of those friends was going to hear Lama Govinda speak and that was that was later on it was like in the late 70s 78 79 Mm -hmm. so a couple of my friends were doing that because Lama Govinda was giving talks at Green Gulch Zen Center on Sunday nights so they went a few times and then they started talking to me about it at that point Lama Gavinda got sick, and I never did get to go oh. and hear his talk at Green Gulch. He got ill, and he went back to India for a period of time. Mm. And then he came back to mm. Mill Valley, to Marin County, and I did get to hear him give some lectures oh, great. Uh, on Alan Watts' houseboat and mm. lectures on, uh, on the I Ching book that he was publishing. Wow. Uh, those are his last public lectures. So mm. feel very, very grateful to have... Been in his
0: presence,
1: yeah, and that his writings had a profound effect on me. Mm.
0: Was Lee close to me? Was she around at the time?
1: Lee was Lee there was with there, him, yeah. yes, definitely. Mm. She was always by his side. She was always there. She was the gatekeeper too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's enough questions. <laughs> it's time for Lama to rest now. <laughs>
0: That's great. So this is you being exposed to Buddhism in a way, in a a more formal way, even if it's still quite informal. It was
1: very informal, really. But
0: it's definitely Buddhism, sort of squarely. What carried you through to feeling some sense of wanting to make a personal commitment to that?
1: As soon as I heard about it, Hmm. I wanted to make a personal commitment. Hmm. It was all very mysterious, but there was also something that deeply resonated with me. Yeah, I just felt like... I felt like there was that thread of continuity from when I was 10 years old. There was something there, yeah, that continued. Hmm. I remember sitting on the ground in my garden, probably in 1980, and just saying aloud to myself, I am a Buddhist. Hmm. I know that I've been a Buddhist. I've always been a Buddhist,
0: yeah. So we can cut from 1980, California, you're in your garden, mm-hmm. realising you've always been a Buddhist. There's this community which you're now, you know, one of our most kind of respected and senior members of the order. It's going on in a parallel world over in the UK. In yes, the same in a way, time. quite alien to your world probably in a certain way. The same time period, lots of experimentation, some crossover. Lama Govinda was a friend of Sangharakshita's, the founder of the Triratna Buddhist community, for those who don't know. So what connects up these two worlds? How does the bridge get made across the Atlantic and across the whole American continent? Yeah. Yeah, in
1: 1988, through my friends, who I didn't have a lot of contact with because they lived kind of far from me, but they had face-to-face contact with Lama Govinda. Well, through them, I got invited to come to, what's called a Buddhist council of Northern California. and They had meetings every few months. And one of those meetings was held in Berkeley, at the very beginning of 88, and I met Saramati, Alan Sponberg, at that meeting. He had just moved to be a professor at Stanford, and I was turns out I was living a few blocks from him in uh, Menlo Park, right near Palo Alto. (laughs) Yeah, so I met him, and then three months later, he called me up and he said, there's someone who's visiting here that I think you would like to meet. And they came over to my house. It was Manjavajra. Hmm. As soon as he walked in the door, one of the first things he said was, you know, my teacher was really good friends with your teacher. And he gave me this little photocopy of a photo of Lama Govinda and Bhante. I don't know whether it was taken in Kalimpong or whether it was taken in, I can't remember exactly where Lama Govinda was was living then. He was living nearby. Hmm. 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 Yeah. And I thought, wow, what has just arrived on my doorstep, you know? Because ah. I had been looking for community, I mean, I didn't have community. I was just reading and meditating, although I'd never really been taught to meditate, in a sense, mm. and uh, working on myself, trying to work with my conditioning. <laughs>
0: so I, I'm curious because, because you know, Manjivadra, uh, for those of you who don't know, Manjivadra is a member of the Tibetan Buddhist order. Uh, he currently lives back in England, but he was instrumental in setting up our community in the US on both coasts. But he wasn't based on the West Coast, so really there's you and Saramati at this point practicing
1: Yeah, Saramati had invited Manjavajra to come and give a workshop at Stanford and give a talk, and I went to that evening talk and then the workshop the next day. So what happened out of that workshop was that I wanted to start something, and talking with Manjavajra about the FWBL just what it was about and it just felt, yeah, this is this feels like it, even though I was looking for something really close, closer than San Francisco, even mm. <laughs> to where I was okay. living. <laughs> <laughs> so I end
0: and where but, are there where are there Buddhist groups around sort of Capertino um, and Menlo? There are
1: lots of Buddhist
0: groups. Well Yeah. So you didn't need to go into the city. Mostly
1: so. a lot of Tibetan groups, and I was visiting them, and I just didn't feel comfortable. It was like, well, who is your teacher? Who have you gone to refuge with? And those kinds of questions, and well, I'd been a Buddhist for eight years. I mean, really, declared Buddhist for eight years. And yeah, I wanted a more non-sectarian approach, mm. which is what I felt, Lama Govinda, even though it was very Tibetan. Mm. Uh, well, you
0: don't go for refuge to the teacher, you go for refuge to the Dharma. To That's the Dharma,
1: the... exactly, mm. exactly.
0: So you and Saramati, or Alan Sponberg as was, you end up being these pioneering figures, the first Americans ordained in America as members of the then Western Buddhist order, now the Triratna Buddhist order. How long did that take from your first sort of meeting, Manjivadra walks in the door?
1: Yeah, that was March of 88. April 8th of 88, we held our first meditation study group in Sarmadhi's living room. We sent out a letter to the people who had come to the workshop that Manjibajra did, and we had eight people, I think, come who were mm-hmm. interested in a weekly thing. Yeah.
0: That's 30 years ago. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that and it's going. the anniversary
1: of the FWBO, too. It is. Of, that's what, of course it is. Yes, you yeah, right. It's, the, it's total coincidence. It's the founding, founding
0: anniversary of, of the community. <laughs> so that gets going. Mm. Does it take off?
1: It did, yeah. It was very consistent. That group had kind of moved from his living room to my living room depending on what was going on in their family with their kids and with my kids and you know we became friends he and his wife and two boys yeah and I went to Ariloka in August and spent about three weeks there and then I took care of their kids while they went to something we weren't mentors yet but Mm. they went to a gathering at Ariloka in Mm. the fall then Mm. so we both got introduced to Ariloka and that community.
0: Hmm. Now I've got a question about that time because it's very interesting to hear you talk about this interaction of families again. Mm -hmm. His kids, your kids, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. And it's probably fair to say that both Arya Loka and back in the UK, the community that you were getting involved with wasn't really centred around people with families. It was centred around people living in often single-sex communities, that kind of thing. But that's all changed quite a lot now. But did you notice at the time the big cultural differences that you were running into?
1: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I did, I did.
0: And how was that?
1: I guess I had a lot of confidence in um, my spiritual vision, or my, Mm. um, my practice, my spiritual practice, if you will. I know there was a lot of concern about that, you know, out here when I came to the East Coast, and there was a way that that what was going on in England was being imported to New Hampshire, and it was really difficult for people because, in my thinking, it wasn't allowed to grow organically the way that it grew organically in London. In terms of single-sex communities, even single-sex activities and that kind of thing, it was... If people felt like, well, they had to accept this or not, period. Mm. We didn't do it that way. In
0: <laughs> that never goes well, West particularly not in America. <laughs> that's like... And on the West
1: Coast, that would definitely not have happened. We wouldn't have gotten anywhere if we had tried to do that.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, when the Dharma—well, when the Dharma meets any culture—it takes quite a while for it to yeah. seed and fruit in a way yeah. that's natural. And of course, the FWO was young back yeah. then and inexperienced in a way, even immature, and it hits, it hits yeah. a completely different culture. You're going to get all sorts of
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: upheavals.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there was so much idealism. And mm. I am idealistic, and I could relate to the idealism. Uh-huh. But there were some times when I just felt like i would being kicked in the stomach with some of the ideas and reading some of the books that were coming. Mm. Buddhist vision, for one, I just... I was loving that book, and I was remember I got to work a little early. I was sitting in my car reading that book at some point, point. and I got to that point, chapter seven, <laughs> about Sivety's and you know, and this has been revised at this point. Sivety's description this, of yeah, the uh, of the Titan realm. And then women's place in the spiritual life, and Mm. what? What is this? (laughs) I was a, I was was definitely a part of the women's movement in the mid (laughs) seventies.
0: Yeah, so you're meeting a completely different. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah. I had to come up against views that I strongly held. And then I was challenged. Well, you're having a reaction because you're really holding on to these views firmly and you're not allowing yourself to look more broadly at this issue, Hmm. which I did. And I'm very grateful for. And I had lots of correspondence and communication with Sabuti, too, Hmm. later on
0: it's interesting isn't it because a lot of people have that experience don't they in our community where they come in from their world with their conditioning and they're challenged by the dharma they're challenged by the culture the encounter and actually that's a two way that's a two way thing right it is people bring in other perspectives and sometimes those Mm -hmm. perspectives change Mm -hmm. the community for the better
1: there was enough positive that I was seeing like these concerns and these issues that were very controversial They didn't make me want to run away Hmm. But they did make me wonder Whether I could be a part of the order
0: And so how did that resolve? Because I'm I'm struck by this image of You know, you listening to Joan Baez In Mm -hmm. the late 60s By the sounds of it Talking about some quite similar ideas To what Mm -hmm. eventually manifests in your life In our Mm -hmm. community But from such a different Cultural perspective And one that in a way suits you more naturally Because you're familiar Mm -hmm. with it what is it convinces you that there is a place for you in the order? Is it just the strength of Sangrax's particular? I could really
1: get behind spiritual hierarchy. I really could see that, and I, you know, kind of want. I, I had been wanting that kind of, you know, uh, guidance. And,
0: uh, and could you explain that for me? Because some people won't know what spiritual hierarchy is, or they'll they'll hear that and think the Vatican. You know cardinals and bishops, and that's not how it works. <laughs> no, in our no, community. no, no. Just that
1: um, that there are people who are more spiritually experienced and advanced than I am, mm. and that that is a good thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you choose to you choose to look up to them. That's the <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. That I have that I can I can have models, and that also shows me uh, the potential that I have to to progress. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there weren't a spectrum there or a hierarchy. I've come to think that exemplification is a much better word than hierarchy. That's the word that I use, but exemplification is the experience. And then a lecture that Bhante gave when I went to Ariloka that summer every morning before this retreat started, we were listening to tapes of Bhante's lectures out on the screen porch. and. Uh, I think the first one that I heard was the individual, the group, and the spiritual community, which I still think is the most important teaching that I received at that point. Mm. And I think it's still incredibly important teaching. Yeah, what is it to be an individual? And how do we transform the positive group to the spiritual community?
0: Mm. So there's this great clash of cultures sort of in you and, you know, the UK and the US and all that stuff. And you find enough... Of your own individuality to contribute to that, to that mm-hmm. forming community that's mm-hmm. the order at that point mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. And how
0: long did that process take before you got to the point of being ready
1: to, yeah. to join
0: and feeling you wanted yeah. to join?
1: I became a Mitra in April of 89, along with Saramadi and Varshari We became Mitras in my living room in Palo Alto. My parents were there, actually.
0: Whoa. <laughs> That's fab.
1: I know. They were visiting at that time. And then I requested ordination in October, I think, of that same year. After Dama Dina came out, we invited her to come out and do a uh, retreat on the West Coast. And uh, she stayed with me, and we had lots of talks about what it was to be in the order what that process was like she explained to me the six guidelines and and uh, yeah after she left it wasn't long before I wrote my letter to Pontty so that was in October of 89 and then in uh, April of 90 I was invited to go on a Gfr retreat at Karaloka, it was the last of the selection retreats, I think. What came out of that retreat were the chittas who were ordained. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was invited to go, not that they were going to be considering me for ordination at all, but I was invited to go to get a broader sense of the movement and the order and the ordination process. Mm-hmm. And meeting the ordination team and meeting with Bondi mm-hmm. before I went to that retreat. So uh, I was ordained then in 93.
0: Oh, so this is interesting, isn't it? You've moved from the late 60s, which is one point in, in 20th century history, and then 89, 90s, a very different period. You've got yeah. you know, Reagan moving into Bush in yeah, yeah. America, a very different sense of America and what it's for. Yeah, I'm sort of curious, as you move towards ordination, do you still find a place for, you know, particularly American bits of the idealism, for feminism? Did you find... Mm. A space for all of that And your idea of what it's going to be like to join this mm. This order at a very different Less optimistic point in history Than 69
1: mm. mm. Yeah, it's a re- really good question I think that the whole idea Of the relationship between personal change And social change That was back when I, you know, was feeling frustrated About my limitations as a person To mm. effect social change And I felt like The order Well, that's one of the things I learned, that they have to go hand-in-hand, personal change and social change. And I started to take my career seriously. So the way that I was starting to express social change, I was never, like, really actively involved in the women's movement in terms of an Hmm. organization. And that was still definitely in my consciousness. But I was wanting to—I had a strong vision to make things better for youth— Hmm. As part of my alternative education thread. And I had the opportunity to sow the seeds for a school-linked health center in a predominantly immigrant community in Daly City, right outside San Francisco. And that happened at the same time. Hmm. That happened at the same time that we were running these meditation study groups, trying to build... The Spiritual community, there, the, the Buddhist community. Yeah, so I started getting involved with working, and I, I hadn't really ever put so much, I was never so committed to my career or my, my work, mm. my livelihood, to say. Yeah. yeah.
0: So it sounds like you've got quite a lot that's, I want to say, like anchoring you into your American life. You know, it's not like you're going to go somewhere else and no. and do your, your spiritual no. life. Your spiritual life is it's here. here in your community. In a way, with a thread that goes back through your American experience, and you're joining this order. There were some Americans ordained, obviously, before you, Mm -hmm. but you were, you know, you and Sarmati were the first to be ordained on home soil. And you come from the heartland. I'm kind of struck with those that that sense of how sort of rooted you are in -hmm. in American earth, as it were. Like, Mm -hmm. what was that like to join the order from here and know that that was a pioneering?
1: It was a natural step for me, but I was very surprised about the attention that was given. From a perspective now, I can see it, but it never occurred to me, oh, I'm going to be the first woman ordained on American soil. I didn't have that thought process around it. I wanted to be ordained. I visited Bhante in March of '93 when I came over for my last GFR retreat at Taraloka, And we already knew that Sarmati, that Alan was going to be ordained in May when Bhante made the trip. And I asked him toward the end of our visit if he would consider ordaining me when he ordained Alan. And he looked at me, well, he said to me, if the ordination team thinks you're ready, then I would be most happy to ordain you. And his whole... I mean, I have this image, and I don't know, his whole face was golden, and there was all this golden light around him when he said that to me. Hmm. Um, I haven't talked about that very much, but uh, it was uh, was very moving. Mm, Yeah. Hmm. But at the same time, I didn't know what was going to happen. But I had that experience
0: Mm.
1: of him then in that moment and it wouldn't have Mm. mattered really if they all thought I needed more time and I don't think it would have mattered that much.
0: (laughs) As someone coming from Scotland, it seems a beautifully American thing to do that you just flat out asked them. Will you ordain me when you're over? Because a lot of people, your British people particularly, tends to be, you know, there's a lot of reserve around things like that. And you know your place and that kind of stuff. Sure. And actually that's one of the great <laughs> things about it being a really international order now. Mm, that, mm, there you are. Yeah. And it's like, there's just that heart response to him and his yeah, his response yeah. back. Yeah. I guess people must have seen that in you too, because they did ordain you. Those, they
1: those. did, yeah. I got a phone call in early May, I think, from Dhammedina and Samatha. They were on the line. It was early in the morning, and I had wakened up that morning really early. I was all ready for work. I was sitting, drinking some jasmine tea. What an unusual morning. It wasn't my usual routine <laughs> of rushing off to work. And uh, hmm. and I got this phone call. Was, wow. Uh. With a couple weeks' notice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. That's the FWBO, that's the true that we know
1: <laughs> I didn't have far to go, oh, just so 3,000 miles
0: uh, <laughs> Now in the intervening years <laughs> We probably need to do five podcasts yeah. to cover the intervening years I wanted to sort of fast forward to now
1: uh-huh.
0: You know, that was you pioneering then As the first Dharmacharini and In fact, one of the first members of the Order Ordained on American soil from America And now you're the only and first American public preceptor in the Triathlon Buddhist Order we have a, what's known as the College of Public Preceptors and that college has a kind of you know, quite profound responsibility in a way for not just ordinations, it does have a responsibility for who joins the order internationally but also in some quite meaningful way holds the spirit of the order and I think at its best exemplifies that as a group of people who've brought much of their life to practice and you've entered that as an exemplar, as it were. We were talking about exemplification. We can come to that and its connection to your life now. There's a, there's a lovely full circle thing where you've gone back to Iowa and you've mm. got connections there. But all these years in between that connect the present time to the years you've just described, from the point of view of practice, if you had to say what makes up Karina Davies' practice... Mm-hmm. In that period, I don't know if it relates to mysticism, I don't know if it relates to your name. We haven't talked about the, the beautiful name and what it means. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. When I was on that last JFR retreat at Taraloka, in meditation one morning, I had this experience, voice, I don't know what it was, that I wanted to commit myself to women growing mm. spiritually. Yeah, to women who wanted to go for refuge. I just had that vision that that would be my work. That would be my practice. And I was already had a deep connection with Green Tara. And so I think it was in reflecting on Green Tara,
0: Hmm.
1: actually, that morning, that that was part of it. And that's what has happened. That's what has happened.
0: Your life has played out from that. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, so... The practices that support that in my life and have always are metta, karana, mudita, <laughs> green tara, my sadhana.
0: Do you feel like a deity of compassion?
1: Hmm. I don't even know what compassion is. I feel like I'm barely getting a handle on <laughs> what compassion is. I feel grateful to have received that name. And I think I was doing a lot of work in the world when I received that name. So I was I was involved in compassionate activity to the extent that I knew what that was.
0: Mm. Did Sangha talk about that quality when he gave you the name?
1: I don't remember him doing that. When he gave me the name, he told me that he had consulted with Sangha Devi about a name for me. And she came up with that name, and he thought that it was a very good name for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Another beautiful daily Sangha Devi. Mm nowadays you're not even the baby of the preceptors college anymore you're now an experienced preceptor relative to some new (laughs) new beasts are coming in but you are in this again in this pioneering position not that you've particularly sought that Mm -hmm. out but it's just sort of happened isn't it that you're first in the door Yeah, yeah, it's just happened what's that been like for you to adjust to being in big quotes being part of the spiritual hierarchy as it were being (laughs) (laughs) being the person who's who's chosen Mm -hmm. to put herself out there living this life dedicated to finding out what compassion is Mm -hmm. and choosing consciously to have an influence, particularly on women, young women, women of Mm -hmm. all ages who are deciding to go for refuge. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I've learned a lot in that process. I mean, you're right, I chose. I, I had a choice and I was very conscious of that when it was presented to me to possibly be a public preceptor.
0: Did it change your idea of of your own practice, do you think, coming into that sort of very strong reflection of what it is to practice?
1: What it is to practice in the order,
0: Mm. in Trigaratna.
1: Yes, because I live in a situation where I'm not rubbing elbows with people more experienced than I am in Trigaratna. I chose to go on, to be involved in GFR retreats every year since I was ordained, and that's where I received my most significant kalyana Mitrata, and now i still feel like a baby in the college i only go once a year which i really wish that i could go twice a year mm. and i'm trying to figure out how to do that but i feel like i have so much to learn and every time every meeting i am mm. learning so much
0: well, i was just struck me that you mentioned this experience of kalyana mitrita mm. on the training retreats for women who preparing for ordination some other friends of mine who are public preceptors have said that's their experience of the meetings It's, it's just this really fantastic experience of in a way quite ordinary friendship with people they've usually known or at least known of for a long time and just how affirming it is to be in that sort of company
1: yeah there was a lot of awe and wonder yeah I'd say maybe the last couple of meetings I I wasn't pinching myself quite as often (laughs) (laughs) to find out if I'm really here. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know a lot of people. I mean, the women I knew, but not real well. But most of the men I didn't know at all, but I knew of, of Mm. course, a lot of them.
0: So you're entering that world of some people you know, some people you don't know at all. But is there, I suppose, a common thread? Is there something that's recognizable and familiar between the training retreats for women that you're taking part in in your own country and then going to this big international meeting is there something that you come home to as it were with that
1: yes I think there's definitely a sense of familiarity from the very beginning really and maybe that has more to do with the spirit of friendliness and mm. and welcoming and love that I experienced immediately even though I was nervous and Still, kind of like it's a mystery about how I got to be there. <laughs> but yes, I felt welcomed into this family, and that was not a surprise at all. And just the gratitude that, yeah, the gratitude that I hold for people who started up this movement in order, you know, Banti mm. and all of the people who had that kind of intimate connection and. Contact with him in mm. the early days, and and then to be in a room with people who've been in the order for forty years, or however long That's it is, right. and who you know sat in living rooms with Bundy, and to be able to just witness. So I'm a person when I walk into a new situation, I am observing a lot. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, and so that's what I've been doing. I did that, especially the first couple of years. But just to see how they work together. So it was like the idealism. Then just seeing it in action with that group of people, how they make decisions, how they communicate with each other. How they express their differences of opinion and how consensus begins to unfold, and that experience of third order of consciousness, which I've experienced there more strongly than I ever have anywhere else in my life.
0: Hmm. That's a good advert for the Preceptors College, mm-hmm. I think. Okay. <laughs> I'm quite struck that we're sort of at this horizon point almost in Triratna, and that it's 50 years, almost 50 years since the community began. And you're saying, you know, you're in a room with people who sat in living rooms with Sanger actually when it was first getting going. Mm-hmm. He's still with us. He's very old. Mm-hmm. In the next 10 years, we'll be moving into a completely new phase of history. And there is this lovely continuity that everybody can plug into in a certain way. But I'm quite struck that here you are. You're starting a new Buddhist group. You're not kind of sitting back saying, that was me. I can survey my achievements, as it were. You're going home to visit your mum to help care for her. And in the process of doing that, you're connecting back into Iowa, into the seat of it all.
1: Yeah, that's just kind of amazing, really, what happens. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen. But my father died six years ago. And before that, I was going to visit a lot more often as my parents got more frail in their 90s. My father was 94 when he died, and my mother will be 94 next week when I get back there. I have been rediscovering my hometown I mean, as a child, I moved in and out of that town, but I was born there. I graduated from high school there.
0: Um, and this town is?
1: Burlington, Iowa. Burlington, Iowa. It's right on the Mississippi. And I'm appreciating the town more than I ever did, just physically even, the environment, the place, mm. being by the river, the old, old buildings. It was a railroad town. There's a lot of history in that town. And I think when I lived there, you know, it's just, you know, I don't even know how many times I even remembered there was a river there within my eyesight.
0: Has it changed a lot? It's changed
1: a lot. Not for the good, really. In America... It's a town of 30,000 people, so it's a small city by Iowa standards. Downtowns in those communities are dying out as strip malls are building up on the edge of town, and everybody wants to build their new church or their new school, whatever, out on the edge of town rather than in the center of town. Mm. I have made friends, new friends there, from my parents, actually. Two of my best friends there are a retired Methodist minister and his wife. And he's a very political, (laughs) left-wing person. And um, becoming a Methodist minister was kind of a retirement career for a while. Now he's (laughs) retired from that, even. But he's a mystical Christian. Mm. He's really into... He has a different view, and he's very attuned with Buddhist principles as well although Jesus is his guy you know <laughs> but I really appreciate the two of them they're very different to it. so there's those two people and then I've met some other people in relation to them one of the women that I grew up with we were in the same church and we were in Rainbow Girls together <laughs>
0: What is Rainbow Girls? Is
1: Rainbow it's a Girls... Masonic. It's a, ma- it's a, Masonics, it's a Masonic uh, organization for young women. Yeah. Mm. yeah, And I was very involved in that. Anyway, she got in touch with a Methodist minister's wife saying that she wanted to get in touch with me. And she wanted to talk about my Buddhist practice because she considers herself a Buddhist. She didn't know where to go with it. She wants a teacher. There's nothing there. There's nothing around there. We met a little over a year ago. We started to talk about what she could do to have a sense of consistent practice, Mm -hmm. and I said I'd be happy to stay in touch with her. And we brought together some people that we thought would be interested, and that actually were interested before. I knew that they were interested in Buddhism. And we brought them together and talked about a weekly group, and they started it up. I led them through Mindfulness, Breathing, and Metabhavana. I taught them those meditation practices, gave them information about it, suggested that they read Living with Kindness, that they start studying that book. And there were five of them initially. The group has changed formation now. A couple people have dropped out, and a couple people have joined. So it's still five people. And now they're doing the foundation course as they finished Living with Kindness.
0: I'm just recalling now you and Saramati... You know, just I know. that very, I know. very, again, quite American thing of just people in their houses getting together.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, maybe that's one of the connections with the movement is, you know, Sangha actually in Britain in the late 60s and living rooms and, you know, just connecting with people as friends. And yeah. that whole idea of Triratna as a network of friendship. Yeah. It's easy to become one of these things that people say. Yeah. But actually that's what it is, isn't it? The preceptors in a room are yeah. fundamentally friends, yeah. you know.
1: And those five people are friends with each other, and they have a lot in common. It really works, and they're very committed to meeting weekly, and I try to be there every two months now, but it's 2,000 miles away.
0: It's a big country. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking time out from your travels, from your trip, to come and talk to us. It's really fantastic to hear, Mm -hmm. Uh, very moving. Mm. to listen to your story
1: thank you for your questions it was a delight
0: (laughs) (laughs) so we'll be back with some more buddhist voices uh, this coming season listen out for them you can connect on the front page of the buddhist center online via soundcloud and audio boom itunes etc and for now take care